What's up, guys, and welcome to Drum Talk, the podcast where we all just drum about it, we talk about it. My name is Dean Testa, and this week, I am joined by Symbol Smith, content creator, drum builder, live and session drummer, entrepreneur, and owner of Reverie Drum Co., Timothy Roberts. What's up, Tim? Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad I got the name right, because I was messing... Messing it up so nailed bad. It. Before you started. nailed it, man. That was perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. It's great. So, I mean, jumping right into it. Um, in we're recording this on Wednesday, August fourth. Um, yep. On Saturday, we're gonna be able to see each other in person. Yeah, meeting for person for the first time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Looking I'm forward to it. Really excited about it at the uh, Music City Drum Show. And yep, what kind of you actually kind of brought it up. We were just talking like while we were texting throughout the week and kind of prepping for this, um, just like all the work that goes into like um, a show like that. And this is like you said, um, while we were talking previously, uh, the first time you're doing like a big show like this. So mm-hmm. like, how has that process been? Uh, majorly stressful. And uh, <laughs> yeah, as expected as it is for everybody else that's prepping for the show. Um you know, you got to get inventory. You got to get things all the way. We've got inventory all the way down to like our Sharpies that we're bringing. It's like everything <laughs> has been put in a list somewhere just so we don't forget things. We have an accurate count of inventory. And I'm trying to deal with having enough cymbals, having enough drums, having enough accessories at all at the same time. And it's, uh, it, it's been a, uh, it's been a week. We'll just say it's been a week. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And like maybe, I mean, if, if, you, if you're cool with kind of explaining this, um, for a lot of people that go to like a drum show or like NAM or something like that, they don't really see the perspective of the companies that go. And like what's – because obviously as a, as a drummer, as me, I'm just viewing, I'm walking around, I'm wanting to meet people. I have no – networking might be my biggest goal when I go. But what's kind of the viewpoint, if you're cool with sharing this, yeah. what's the viewpoint of a company like yourself, um, like like with Reverie, like what is the goal going into a drum show like this? For your first show, actually. Yeah, Ever. right, yeah. I, I've been to Nam before as a, an, inte- an attender as well as just trying to check it out to see if it's something we would want to do. And I've been to PASIC before, just kind of other other shows right. uh, like like you as an attender. Um, and you're just checking out things. You're, you're not paying too much attention to the little things. You're just seeing what catches your eye, uh, and being on this side of it, preparing to have my own booth. It's, uh, there's so much more of an intense focus on the minutia of making sure the entire booth itself looks, uh, professional and people are going to be interested to, to check out what you have, what you've brought, uh, I tend to be a little bit less about trying to present myself in a certain light uh, and more so I focus on the products themselves. Uh, and yeah, so it's, it's, it's a different thing for me. I'm trying to navigate uh, the best way of handling a, uh, handling a show like this. And, and so it's, I'm kind of going about this one, we're just going to see how it goes. I've kind of brought everything in the kitchen sink to just try to, you know, <laughs> I don't know what people are going to be interested in. And if they're, I don't know if we're going to sell a lot or sell a little, either way, it's going to be worth it just to, like you said, network with people, meet, meet some of the other builders, some, some guys that are going to be 
there and having booths are guys I've uh, followed for years and, and I'll finally get to meet them, check out their stuff. There's such a difference of checking out an instrument in person as there is uh, hearing it via your phone. Absolutely. Uh, so that's a huge part of it too. So uh, I, that might be a non-answer, but it's, it's kind of, uh, I'm, I'm more in open mode this time, just kind of observing and then bringing as much as I can. And, you know, I'm not super concerned with, I've got to sell a ton of stuff. It's more so for me about the connections that you make, the, the people that you meet, and uh, it helps inform the creative process of what you end up making because we make everything, everything that we make is, is made in-house, so, and it's all made to be functional. So if there's a certain product that isn't selling and I find that I personally don't use it on gigs, I'll just scrap it and we'll just move on to something else. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh there's a lot in that, but that, hopefully that is at least somewhat of an answer. No, 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 that that's yeah. good. So kind of to break it down, um, the main goal, even though I mean, as a business, the idea would you would want to be able to leave the show with less that you came with, obviously. Yeah. Um, but also it puts a a name and a face to a company that some people might have been using the products or seen you online. Um, and kind of gives them that personable factor into yeah. the, it, oh, this is not just a company. There's people behind this that right. I can talk to, say hi to, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and perceptions are always flawed. Uh, you know, on on Instagram or, or I, don't, I don't use TikTok, but on TikTok, on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all of it, you know, p content creators are putting out what they want you to see and they're putting their best foot forward. And so a trade show really is a chance to, in a, in a sense, like prove that you have the goods, you know, you're, cause it's very easy to kind of, you know, only show certain aspects of your thing via very true. social media. And then people have this perception of you that isn't actually real uh, or it might be kind of uh, skewed in a way to present yourself in a more favorable light. So in a way being in person with a customer or uh, even with just another drummer that you're trying to, meet and get to know you, you get to clear away some of the pomp and see who the person really is what the company's really about what their products actually sound like in person uh and that to me is really exciting yeah and it's very interesting that you brought up perspective and how things can be perceived because you're very involved not just with like the gigs that you play all the time but um me and you are both involved in a face group Facebook group called Worship Drummer, mm -hmm. and something always ends up popping up, and there's always a massive debate about this on like how low do you need to go when it comes to like achieving that like worship fat snare sound. And so I would really like for you to kind of dig into that, and it may be yeah. a completely different answer than I think you're gonna say. Yeah, uh, but I'm super excited to hear your thoughts on like. Do you really need to go as low as people think you you need to? Um, is the perception of people correct? Like, do you have to go that low? Do you not need to have to go that low? So, yeah, I would love for you to take that away for a second. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to talk more about this in the in the five tips that we're going to do later on in the episode. But awesome, uh, th that'll be a big part of it. But a lot of it, for, I grew up playing in church, uh, and then that's kind of what got me into playing. And then I discovered jazz and. Uh, funk and uh, rock and roll music and that kind of set me in this whole different direction creatively yep. but my roots really are uh, in church and when 
when I actually moved, uh, when I graduated from university, I moved to a city and I ended up just playing a ton of church gigs because that was the gig that was available. And you start to, you, I started to get more into the culture of it and see that there's this, the, there's a movement in, in CCM and, and the drum sounds tend to all kind of follow the movement and, it, yep. and everybody's trying to do the same thing that's popular. That's, you know, that's associated with the popular songs of the day, which is no different from pop music. Um, Correct. But again, it's like we talked about perception. There is this perceived thing in CCM music that the snare drum has to be as low as you can possibly tune it. And so a lot of guys, I'll go into some churches and I'll hit their drums and it's like, there's like no tension on the, on, on, top or bottom head it's really loose and flabby and ugly sounding uh short answer is you don't have to tune it as low as you think you might need to to get a really full fat sound oftentimes uh there's a difference between what you're hearing behind the kit and what is actually translating out in front of the kit that's a huge part of uh my my entire philosophy behind drumming is perspective and and thinking about crafting the sound you're you're making and creating for the listener because we're not playing for ourselves right we're actually yeah engaging in the music whether it's in worship music or if it's in a pop band we're trying to make music that is cohesive that will translate out and the listener will enjoy at the end of the day you know what i mean uh so so perception is huge and short answer and we'll give a more detailed answer later but Absolutely. short answer is you don't have to tune in as low as you as you might think yeah, it, it really goes into, um, and again, I, I know you're going to go into this more, but it, it definitely has to do with um, choices and whether that be tension of the drum, whether it be head, whether I, I don't want to go into things because I don't know what you're going to say with your, for, for, yeah. for your five things. So I don't want to give anything away that potentially might be what you're talking about. But yeah, I think we're going to get more into that and that'll be a great topic to kind of run into because yeah. I didn't know you were going to grab that into your top five oh, yeah. um, when it comes to our main topic. So how will we just jump ship and yeah. we will go into um, when it comes to really crafting the sound like a fat snare drum sound or something like that. I think the choices in snare drums is so important. Um, and everyone has their like go-to ones. I have yet to really find one that's like, I love snare drums and it's hard for me just to pick one. And I know mm -hmm. it's probably the same way for you. So this question yeah. is probably going to be a little, it's a very loaded question. And I'm, I'm really excited to start asking more people this. You're the second person I've asked this to. So I'm really pumped about this, but what would be your top three snare drums? And again, they, they don't have to mm. be some ones that you own. It could be ones that okay. you have tested out before and then just it was at like a drum shop or something like that or whatever. So what, yeah. what would be your top three? I'm going to try to put aside my extreme bias since I make snare drums. Um, <laughs> and I'll say I'll, I'll stick to kind of style of snare drum. And this is definitely stuff that we that we make. So the main snare drum I make size wise and setup wise is going to be a 14 by seven yeah. snare. Love that size. Uh, and what we do Typically, uh, on I would say probably 90% of the drums that we make, we do a rounded over uh, or a semi-round over batter edge and a sharper 45 resonant edge. Maybe that's, maybe that's giving away a little bit too much of the secret sauce, but to me, I find that is a magic combo for snares, for toms, for kick drums. It's pretty incredible. Uh, and what you get with that is you get a little bit more warmth and control from that round over top 
and a little bit more uh, crispness and uh, articulation on the snare from the sharper 45 on the bottom. So a 14 by seven snare drum, uh, maybe like a little bit more of a medium to hard wood, just like a maple is usually pretty awesome. Walnut's pretty awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I like walnut. Uh, deeper snares like 14. This is a, I'll, we'll tag this into the second snare drum, which would be a 14 by four uh, mahogany snare drum. I, oh, wow. I freaking love 14 by fours. I love deep snares. I love skinny snares. And there's this cool uh, paradox, if you will, where you can actually get some of the most fat, gushy, warm, mushy sounding uh, sounds out of the thin drum. And you can get some of the most insane crack and pop out of a deeper drum. Oh, yeah. So yep. cranking the 14 by 7, dropping the 14 by 4. A lot of times people think kind of one-dimensionally, like, oh, if I want a fat snare sound, I need a 14 by 10, and I need to just drop the whole thing way low. Uh, but the thing about that is there's all different kinds of factors that go into yeah. how a drum is going to sound at the end. With a shallow drum, like a 14 by 4, uh, mahogany. So mahogany is a softer wood, lower fundamental. It has muted highs, boosted lows. It's just warm. Uh, it's like laying in a pillow. Mahogany is <laughs> my favorite wood to work with overall. Uh, and so you have this warm wood. You have the same kind of edge setup I talked about before, and you tune it down a little bit. Not a lot. You still have the bottom head uh, pretty tight. You tune it down, do some dampening, and loosen the wires, and you can get just this really nice, full, deep sound. And it's because the two membranes are so close together. And if you tune them well, the deeper sounds can really work well because they're so close. Uh, there's probably some physics people out there that could do a little better at explaining it. But with a deeper drum, a 14 by 7 or 14 by 8, when you crank it, uh, thin drums, when they're cranked, tend to get a little pingy sounding and sound a little flat, but if you crank a deeper drum, you have the the physical distance between the two membranes. Correct. And you have this body, so you'll get the crack and the really high-pitched, like, cutting sound, but it'll still have this body and warmth to the sound that you don't get with a shallow drum. So my one and two would be, like, a deeper drum, like a 14 by 7, and then two would be, uh, like, a 14 by 4. And then lastly... I have a uh, an old Leedy and Ludwig drum that I got from one of my old professors. That's uh, it has the date stamped on the inside. Uh, 1965 was when it was wow. made, and it had had some modifications over the years. Someone put this like horribly ugly paint job on it, and it was my first ever vintage restoration where I stripped off the old finish, uh, sanded it down, added tongue oil, made it look super nice, and that drum has been with me for about 10 years now and I've used wow. it on so many recordings. It is not a perfect circle. A lot of those old drums kind of over time, the wood will just sort of, uh, you know, bend and get out of shape a little bit. Yep. So it's not a perfect circle. Uh, you can't really tune it perfectly. And because of that, it's got this like funky kind of thing in the overtone that when you record it and you listen back, it's just, it, it's, it's just beautiful. So, um, that kind of older wood, once it kind of deteriorates over the course of 50, 60 years, it deteriorates, the shell gets out around, 
sometimes it can le- it, it really can make the drum just unusable, but sometimes there's this magic combo of it's just funky enough to be delightful to play and it just tunes well in a bunch of different ranges and just sounds awesome. So that would, that's probably my number three. That's a, that's a nice little uh, combination for sure. And I, I really like what you kind of lightly went into when it came to how the depth does kind of affect and help um, if you're looking for something that's going to cut, but also give you more of a deeper punch mm-hmm. in, in the snare drum sound. Um, and that really also depends on, like you've said, like the bearing edges and what also wood you're using. Are you using a softer wood? Are you using a harder wood? Like is right. the sound moving quicker through the shell or is it moving like slower through the shell? Like poplar is going to be very, very slow. Yet when you tune that thing up, even though it's slow, it's like a more of like, it sounds almost more like aluminum with, mm. with poplar because it's so yeah. dry that when you tune it up, you're just getting all of the attack, especially depending on what type of bearing edges are put yeah. onto that drum. So it, yeah, there's so many re- factors. Really quickly on that point, because the the tuning uh, tuning of the membranes up, when you tune up, you're quickening the response the drum has. So you can kind of balance out this really beautiful mix of you have a wood like poplar that is a, like you said, slower moving, like the the sound travels through it in a slower way. It's very porous and soft. Yes. And then you counterbalance that with the tension, which is increasing the responsiveness. You can kind of get into a point where you're dialing in different factors of your snare drum to get a very specific sound that you're going for. Uh, so that's, that's a good point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Oh, believe me, we could talk about these topics all day, but we do not have all day. Yes. <laughs> so yep. we'll jump right into, um, and I love, I, I'm, I'm really starting to love this question every time I ask somebody because everyone's answer is, is so different because everyone's situation is so different. And so I would love to kind of dive into what a day for you looks like mm, and okay. kind of even dive into like, I mean, do you have a regular job and you're doing this on the side or um, what, whatever, whatever that case is, I would love to, so starting yeah. from from whenever you wake up to whenever you go to bed. Sweet. Yeah. So this is, this is my, my gig, my one and only gig. Uh, I I do play music on the side as much as I can. Uh, Thankfully I don't have to rely on it like I used to. So I I was, I played sort of professionally and had a couple odd jobs, but played for the most part, made my money, make it making music, which was fun and also challenging in many ways. Uh, But so now I'm doing the the businesses. So it's Reverie Drum Company, Stack Ring Percussion, uh, Mod Cymbals, and the uh, very newly minted Timothy Roberts handcrafted cymbals. We've got four brands. Uh, so I'll wake up. Typically, I'll wake up around s- between six and seven. Yep. Uh, get coffee, answer emails, probably watch some YouTube videos of different drummers. I like to yep. keep up with. Uh, I try to keep up with other companies, what other companies are doing, uh, my favorite drummers, what they're doing, and just try to glean different information. So it's almost, I kind of consider that part of my workday. Um, uh, YouTube is kind of part of my workday. Yeah. Uh, the exploring and, and doing all that kind of stuff. And, and then just ingesting music, you know, it's trying, trying to keep music in my ears at all times, keep developing my ears. Um, so I do that in the morning. Got to have the coffee with that. Uh, then I Always usually go have coffee. It's, it's essential. I, I don't work <laughs> at all. If I can't have coffee, <laughs> uh, I am addicted. Uh, uh, but 
yeah, so after that, I'll, I'll typically head down into the workshop, which is at the lower level of my house. And from there, it's typically going to be either making instruments or getting instruments ready to ship and, and or shipping them. Uh, and throughout the entire day, I, I typically bounce from thing to thing. So there's always like anywhere from like 15 to 20 different to-do items on my list that are wow. just kind of running around in my brain. And I've, over the last six, seven years, just kind of figured, figured a way to sort of like run through all those to-do lists uh, and jump on different ones at different times. So right. some days it'll be like shipping all day. Some days it'll be hammering cymbals all day. Other days it'll be assembling drums all day. And then even other days it'll be just content capturing and editing videos. And um, throughout the mix, I'll, I'll always stop every hour, two hours, pull up Instagram, make sure I don't have any pertinent uh, messages that are coming through or any calls or emails that have come through that are uh, time sensitive. So uh, in, in, in some sense, it's like... Uh, in a, in a way, it's like living in a madhouse because you're just constantly <laughs> bouncing from one thing to the other. Um, but uh, my wife just start started working with us, and uh, she's going to help uh, kind of narrow my. Oh, my that's going to be helpful. List and just do some more admin stuff and some things that I'm just really honestly not good at, uh, which is going to help me stay focused on the creation of the instruments themselves, which is really the the important thing. And, you know, along with having a business, you, you, you find something you love to do. So build drums, make cymbals, whatever. And you start doing it. And then you're like, Oh, wow, I love this. I want to have a business. And then 50 other things get added on top of that thing you love. Yep, absolutely. And those 50 things, a lot of those 50 things are things you, you do not like to do at all. No. <laughs> and there you just <laughs> have to do them. Um, so, so a lot of that is, learning how to build the structure around you to to allow for you to stay focused creatively and then all of the minutia stuff gets taken care of so and then you know i usually finish up the day around seven uh sometimes work late finish at seven thirty or 8 p.m grab a bite to eat watch a show with my wife and then go to bed so yeah <laughs> it's full 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 day yeah it just it really that's one of the main reasons why i like uh, asking people that because you get the perspective of of what really goes into owning a business. It's it's flashy a lot. Uh, like people are into like the idea of being an entrepreneur and all that stuff, and you get all the the glamoury side of it. Again, you get a skewed perspective sometimes when you're looking at Instagram all the time or social media. When you're actually in it, and you you realize the amount of work that goes into a business yeah. like like yours like any of the other people that have been on the podcast it's really eye-opening to see mm -hmm. like oh man like you, this person is actually working harder than they would if they worked at a nine to five job because oh, you're yeah. you're it's you like the, it, it starts and stops with the book starts and stops with you right yeah and it and it and oftentimes you make less than you would <laughs> if you were yeah. working the nine to five and it's just the I you know I talk to my wife a lot and my wife has to endure my monologues about various topics, uh, but it, thankfully uh, she enjoys them. At least she tells me she enjoys them. Um, <laughs> but I'll monologue. I'll just talk about uh, how people don't understand. It, it, life is really about sacrifice. Yeah, we, we are always making sacrifices to do the thing we want to do. And so specific to owning a business, you sacrifice being able to turn it off. 
I can't ever turn it off. But what I'm gaining is autonomy. I'm gaining um, creative fulfillment, a lot of things that I'm willing to sacrifice the, the amount of stress and the amount of just having uh, I guess just the amount of that's on my plate at all times. I'm I'm yeah. willing to deal with that so that I can have the uh, the job that I want to have and 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 get to do what I love to do. And so it really is about sacrifice in the end. And some people don't want to sacrifice because the the amount of stress can be overwhelming uh, running yeah. your own business. So, uh, but thankfully I have people around me that help me because I think if it was just up to me, uh, I don't know that I would be able to do it at all. So. Yeah, it's it's always good to have that support system around you, and um, that's why I think seeing where where the business is right now, it's always nice to be able to look back and kind of see where everything's came from. And so I would love to jump right into like just your backstory, how you even got to this point, how are you now working on drums and modding symbols and taking broken symbols and <laughs> like just yeah. all this crazy yeah. stuff. Um, yeah, so I mean the the show is yours. Go ahead and, and take us in. Yeah, so uh, I think I mentioned this. I grew up, uh, well, I grew up in a musical family. Um, everybody in my family plays an instrument of some sort. My dad was a band director for uh, many years, and he was also a worship pastor. Uh, so when I learned, he taught, he was the one who gave me my first drum lesson and taught me for about the first year uh, how to play. That's and awesome. then he put me at 11 years old, he put me on the stage at our church. And had me play, and I'm sure I was terrible, but he did it because he knew I needed that experience. And so I was really fortunate to have that kind of experience at a young age and get the opportunities to play with other musicians because it's, you know, as you know, it's obviously one thing just to practice your instrument by yourself. But when you get around other musicians and get to play, that's really where the bulk of the growth happens, at least in my mind. Um, and then you take that and you go back to your practice room and you work things out on your own. And then, but the point is always to get to where you're playing music. So, yep. Um, I did that, uh, for a, a while, I guess until I was about 18. And then I discovered jazz music, funk music, all these other kinds of music I hadn't been exposed to. And I was just immediately hooked. And I was like, I've got to learn how to do that. I think the first record I ever listened to was, uh, Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa double drum record oh, that was the first that was the first jazz great, record what a great jazz record to listen to that's awesome In, insane drumming i'm not a huge fan of that style now i think i my my tastes have changed a little bit absolutely then. but it got me into it it you know it really is what hooked me and so i studied jazz and percussion performance in college and also got a, a business degree on the side uh a little a music business degree it was kind of a all over the place degree that i got uh, and after that, I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. And my original goal was to make it as a jazz musician, which, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina is not necessarily known for having a you huge... want to go to New York for that. <laughs> exactly. And I, I was deciding between moving to New York and moving to Charlotte. And I just moved to Charlotte because I wanted to be closer to family. Yeah. I thought, I'll just try to do some jazz gigs here and there. And I just ended up playing church gigs. So I did that for five years, uh, traveled with some worship leaders. Uh, and yeah, it was a lot of fun. I learned a ton. I learned that I don't, I didn't hit hard enough. So that was one of the interesting oh, wow. things because I studied music in school and I was playing jazz in jazz combos and stuff and learning dynamics. And I would get, then I would go to a church and it'd be in this drum enclosure and the engineer is used to this guy just 
wailing away and cracking cymbals and all this stuff. And yeah, they, they would just kind of in the mic be like, Hey, uh, could you, could you hit the drums harder, please? Um, <laughs> and I was like, what, what, who has ever asked to hit the drums harder? Almost I never. was, uh, so, so yeah, I, I learned a lot throughout that process. And then I actually got, uh, what to me was like my big break. I got this gig uh, with a traveling touring worship leader and I was told I was going to get all the dates for the next year and I was going to move out to where he lived and, and work with doing some of his admin and booking. And so it was going to be my full-time gig. It was going to be like a, a truly full-time wow. musician gig. And I did it for about six months. And then out of the blue, I got fired and he brought in the old drummer. And it was one of the first time I'd ever had this kind of experience of like, that kind of experience just not I, I wasn't prepared for it honestly yeah and because i had been doing it for six months i was completely out of the scene in charlotte i wasn't getting called for gigs because it was like oh tim is tim is not available anymore he's uh he's doing the touring thing now um and so i was kind of at a point where like okay well i got to figure out what is next for me because i don't know that i want to get back into that gigging circuit because i was making nothing you know you right you, you just you're you're trying to scrape together a living playing two or three gigs a week and and some of them it's like yeah we can pay you lunch and 20 bucks <laughs> you know yeah uh, no. <laughs> it's very difficult to make a living doing that so yeah um i had always been insanely obsessed with gear and when i was like 13 years old uh there's a there's a ccm band called third day that yep. uh their drummer david carr was my yeah. hero and I had printed out his gear list from their website. That's awesome. I printed it out and <laughs> framed it and put it above my bed when I was like 13 or 14 That's years amazing. Old. And I was like, I am going to buy everything that David Carr plays because that is <laughs> like, th that will make me a good drummer. Uh, so I started like, you know, buying a symbol here and like saving up my money. And then I get a symbol for a birthday. And so I early on got became kind of obsessed with the actual gear that I was playing. I was constantly right. buying and selling cymbals, constantly buying and selling drums. I was always more interested in cymbals actually. Uh, I can't tell you how many I've owned over the years. Just so many, so many, I wish I hadn't have sold. And uh, when you know, fast, fast forward to when that, that gig fell through for me, I, I was immediately kind of taken back to, well, what if I, built a snare drum like built an instrument i don't even know if i connected that with like what i was going to do for a living but it it was just a thing to do as i was sitting you know at my parents house doing nothing it was like well i might as well try and build a snare drum so i ordered the parts i built two snare drums and i honestly can't remember a transition from building those snares to me thinking okay i'm going to do this for a living it, it was almost like an immediate like I don't know, like a creative explosion happened in my brain. Wow. And it was like, this is what I've got to do. Like, and something about being we're, in the, sorry, go ahead. Really quick question. Yeah. We're, cause I know that I've talked to a lot of builders, um, prior to this. And a lot of them say their first air drums were like trash. Like was, mm. was that an ex same experience for you? Like were the bearing edges weird? Do you mess up the snares that you first got? I've always been pretty, not uh, i've always i think i've always had slight ocd tendencies so 
Interesting. When, when I went into building drums, it was like I was already so attention detail oriented, like to an insane degree. I think I just spent so much time on my first snare drums that I was actually really happy with how they turned out. Oh, wow. Uh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, and that's not to say I haven't ruined my fair share of drums because I certainly have. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I'm over here on this shelf. I'm looking at the very first snare drum I ever made. I just I've kept it in the shop. I pull it out every now and then play it. And wow. there are things I wouldn't have done, I wouldn't do now that I did then. And it was mainly right. just because of my access to parts, my access to the tools that I had. You know, I wasn't dealing with uh, a really nice uh, router table or a, a nice drill right. press. I was doing a lot of the, kind of the DIY uh-huh. uh, ways of building it. But um, yeah, it, surprisingly enough, it, they, they were both. And that was kind of part of it was just I, I felt like I had a success at it. Like it was... It worked. It encouraged you to want to do more. Yeah, it was a very good, it gave me a lot of positive reinforcement and uh, definitely, definitely uh, wet my appetite for like what it could be. And so I think that was part of the inspiration behind it. Oh no, that's great. And so like, how did then, obviously you're starting to make your first like drums and stuff. How long did that kind of go on till um, you started making like some of the, recycled like cymbal like percussion stuff like where where does stack ring percussion kind of fall into that yeah so reverie we started reverie uh yeah we started reverie in 2015 and then did it for three years and then in 2018 i was moving my shop into a new location and i was in my closet i pulled out a box and it had this old cracked sabian el sabor crash (laughs) <laughs> I remember exactly what it was, and I, it was I had it because it was one of David Carr's symbols at the time. Was he played? Oh wow! Sabian El Sabor <laughs> crash, and it has like a little upturned edge, and it was the only symbol I've ever cracked to this day. The only one I've ever cracked, and I was I didn't know like most drummers, I didn't know that you can salvage a symbol. It just had this tiny little like eighth of an inch crack at the edge, and I was like, oh, right. it's done, it's done. I can't play it anymore. <laughs> uh, so I like threw it in a box. And I had it, and this idea came into my mind, like, what if I cut this out and made one of those, like, snare drum crashers? I think Sabian had one at the time. Uh, I can't remember, like, uh, Hoop Crasher or something like that. Okay. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just cut a circle out. So I did that, made one. I was like, oh, this is cool. And then I had all these scraps, and I was about to take them to the dump, and and I just thought, well, what if I used all of these? Like, what could I do with these, like, insanely sharp little like scrap pieces of symbol and my, my only thought was like well i could they i could lay them on a drum or maybe if there's a way i could drape them on a symbol and i went oh okay well what if there was a hole drilled and then i was like okay well how maybe a piece of rope or and then i did some research and it was like oh a little dog tag or like a keychain kind of thing yeah and i was like oh yeah so that you just loop them together and then you can hang them on a symbol you can put them on a drum put them on a hi-hat I did that with those remaining pieces and I was like, oh my gosh, I've never seen this anywhere. Like I've got to start doing this. And then the problem became, how do you source raw material? So I just started hitting up all my drummer buddies and was like, hey, you have cracked cymbals? Like I'll buy them from you. I started scouring eBay. Yeah. I started like reaching out to random people like, hey, do you have cracked cymbals? I'll, I'll buy them off you. And then I started figuring out a way to source the raw material Yep. You know, I had a I had my metal grinder that I used and I just started using that metal grinder for hours and hours and hours just cutting up cymbals, 
came up with little products that we still, I mean, I would come up with a name for a product and it, it's the name of the product still like the crunch ring, you know, like yeah. weird little things like that. And that kind of took off and um, had for, really fortunately had a, a couple of amazing drummers willing to check them out. And then all of a sudden they would post about it. And then instantly it would be like a ton of people reaching out like, how do I get this? This is awesome. Such and such played it. And um, that really uh, kind of set it off on its course. And then, we got connected with the guys over at Dream Symbols because they have a uh, they have a recycling program. So you can basically take a cracked symbol and get a dollar an inch at, at your local drum drum store. So they collect thousands of inches of cracked symbols, and so we started collaborating with them, sourced our material from there, uh, and from there it was kind of off to the races on Stack Ring, uh, and then along the way I I would get symbols in and realized they could be salvaged. And then throughout that process around like 20, late 2018, 2019, I started realizing, oh, well, I could just start hammering on a symbol, which actually, you know, that, that happened before, but uh, yeah, that happened back in 2017. I started like modifying symbols, but. Oh, that's awesome. But in 2018, 2019, I would get symbols in that would be repairable and I would, I started incorporating those techniques of salvaging them and changing them and modifying them. And that's what led to mod symbols being launched. Uh, and that, that led me into launching my own original line of hand, handcrafted symbols. Yeah, where that's I, awesome. So it's kind of everything. I know that's like a lot, but um, that's, that's the general uh, history. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's great. And honestly, like I also lead, like don't really want to waste any time and jump right into kind of like our our top five because all those yeah. things that you had talked about everything that involves the the company um all play into this like main topic of of five ways to better mix yourself behind the kit yeah and so like i'm really really excited to kind of dive into this and at this point honestly like i back off and the, this yeah. is your podcast now so I, i'm i'm really pumped to kind of see how a lot of these factors a lot of these instruments that you build now um, yeah. really play into like what you're going to be talking about with these five ways to mix yourself better definitely i'm very excited and very passionate about these topics uh i, I would say that this this little thing that i'm going to talk about mixing yourself is probably the single thing that is the 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 center of everything that i do kind of stems from these ideas i'm about to talk about so five tips Five tips for better mixing yourself. Um, so number one is going to be, uh, I'm gonna, we'll just say number one is physics and or the why. So why mix yourself? And, it, and, and the answer is physics. I took a, a physics of sound course when I was in college about 12 years ago or 10 years ago. And I, I started learning about frequencies and different higher, lower, middle frequencies and how they carried, how they translated. And that became like insanely interesting to me and i started exploring this idea and around the same time i got to meet bernard purdy who was like if you don't know Dude, who if you don't know who bernard purdy is on. look him up right now uh he's like one of the most influential drummers ever one if of the most recorded purdy shuffle there you yes go. that's the purdy shuffle i was literally in jazz band rehearsal in in school normal jazz band rehearsal the door opens and bernard purdy walks through dude no idea he was coming. No idea he was going to be at the school. And I, my jaw just dropped. It was like, oh, my gosh. He's, this, is, this guy, I've watched 
hours of him online. Like I've tried to do the Purdy shuffle hours and here he is. And so he sits down, he plays a tune with a jazz band. I get to stand literally right behind him and listen to how he orchestrated the sound and how he was mixing himself and how he was hitting wow. certain elements. And I asked him like, why are you, why did you play that way? And he was like, well, I'm not just thinking about what I'm hearing. I'm thinking about what the audience is hearing. So that wow. was the beginning of my journey of learning. What does it mean to mix yourself uh, behind the drums? And so the physics of it is that low frequencies uh, are not necessarily perceived as loud as high frequencies are. So Correct. You, you can stand next to a drum kit. You can hit the kick drum as hard as possible. And then you can hit the crash cymbal as hard as possible. And the, the person is not going to necessarily complain as much as <laughs> about the kick drum as they are the crash cymbal. They're going to be like, oh my yep. God, my ears are bleeding. It's because those high frequencies cut more and they travel farther and they're more per they're perceived as louder than lower and middle yep. range frequencies. So the physics and the why of like why you need to mix yourself is because there are tons of elements on the kit behind you or in front of you that all are perceived in different ways out in front of the kit. And so you have to know the different elements and know how to bring out the appropriate sound so that you can create a cohesive mix to your drum sound. So absolutely, that's number one. So the number two is the technique behind that. And so, like I said, it's, it's how do you approach each element of the kit? Do you slam your snare drum and slam your crash cymbal and then kind of like feather the bass drum? Or are you going to play your snare drum really strongly and gracefully play your ride or your crash? Are you going to bring down in volume the, the cymbals, bring up the volume of the drums, bring the kick up a lot, bring the snare up? When you hit the toms, just smack the toms really loud. You know, like the, there's different ways and you have to learn with, via your technique you have to learn how to how to like when you go to do that fill bring out the the rack and the floor tom louder than you might normally do if you just weren't thinking about it are you able to really play the the ride cymbal lightly when you're trying to open it up into a big crash section can you play it just to where that cymbal blooms and opens up and then just smack your snare drum like there's no tomorrow and just lay into your kick drum like there's no tomorrow the, that's a way and you, you do it via the technique and the, and for, for me, it's just been a, a lot about how uh, it's been asking for feedback from people. I know sound engineers, drummer friends, it's been listening back to recordings. It's been being really critical with my own playing and saying, okay, well, the ride cymbal, the hi-hat sounds too loud in this section. I'm hitting that hi-hat too, too loud. And when I do this kind of section in a song, I tend to hit my hi-hats too loud. And so then you start to practice being a little bit lighter on that. And uh, so the technique really is just basic drumming technique. It's just, it's independence in a lot of ways, learning how to think lightly with your right hand and maybe play heavier with your left. And, and then also a lot of listening and using your ears. Um, that's number two. Uh, number three is perspective. And I've kind of hinted at this with the physics of it, but the reason, another reason why you're doing this is because you're not playing for how you are hearing the drums necessary, necessarily. You're, you're, you're mixing yourself because you're ultimately trying to think about how the listener is going to perceive the sound of your drum kit. A lot of times we don't think 
drummer, us drummers, we don't think too deeply into our sound, and we just go off of what we're hearing behind the kit. We're just thinking like, oh yeah, I you know I I hear this this way, and I'm playing it. Not many people get figure out a way to get past that to think about okay, this this my playing is going through mics, that's going through a system, coming out through speakers. Then it's being heard by a listener who's 50 feet in front. Can I play my drums in a way that optimizes the sound so that when it hits the listener, they're like, oh, that drum part is awesome. Or better yet, they don't even notice the drums and they just feel the entire, they just feel the music. They just connect with the music. Um, so it really is about perspective, uh, how it sounds in front of the kit. That goes back to what I said about Bernard Purdy. He was playing the drums. He would play the ride cymbal kind of lightly. He would go to do a fill, and it was explosive. The toms, he hit the toms so hard, and then right back to the ride cymbal, low, kind of in you know middle volume, and then just double fortissimo on the toms. His snare drum would be a little bit louder, uh, but still quieter than his toms. You know, it, it was it was like he was dancing with the kit in a way that, and and I just I my ears were so young I couldn't understand why was he doing that. And I asked him, he's like, well, it's, I'm, I'm thinking about the listener and how they're hearing it. So that's number three is perspective. And number four and five, just to round it all out, is choosing drums and choosing cymbals. So number four, choosing drums. There are choices you can make in your gear that help you achieve uh, better results when it comes to mixing yourself. There's a jazz drummer by the name of John Riley, one of the greatest jazz uh, educators ever, uh, and, and world-class musician himself. And he talks about, he, he has this little clip on YouTube where he just kind of nonchalantly says, well, because of how the physics of sound works, I choose darker cymbals and I tune my drums higher and I choose brighter drum sounds and darker cymbals. So he was basically saying, I take the high, the things that tend to be high frequency and I try to choose as dark as I can and then I take the things that tend to be low and muddy and I choose ones that, are, that tend to be brighter. So he, he was trying to pull things down more into unison. Now, you don't have to do that. You can play bright, loud cymbals. That's perfectly fine. You can also play dark and uh, low and growly drums, which I tend to do perfectly fine. Uh, but it, it ends up, you start to think about, okay, well, if my floor tom and rack tom tend to be muddy and when they go through the mics and they go through the sound system, they just don't, they don't have clarity to them. Well, maybe they're tuned a little bit too low. Maybe you actually need to tune them up, give them a tighter, more, more pointed sound so that by the time they travel through everything they're going to travel through and they reach the listener's ear, you're going to hear, Doom. you're going to hear a, a tone. You're not just to be, you know, that we've all been in, in, in gigs where the, where the rack tom just sounds like, like a, like a dry heave or something. I don't know. You know, so so you start to choose drums that can allow you to to uh, craft tones that can be better perceived in the way you want them to be perceived. Now, this is all there's so much freedom and flexibility in all these five points, I would say, because there's so many different kinds of music, you know, with a say, like if you're in a, a jazz group, you're going to crank your toms and they're going to sound like timbales, maybe. And that's going to be a lot easier to make them translate out clearly. But if you're in a church context, the drums you're listening to on the record sound really deep, low, and like really punchy and, and, and fat. 
So your task is going to be different than a jazz drummer's task is, but ultimately we're trying to figure out the best way to mix ourselves so that the, the drum set comes across like one cohesive instrument that's well mixed, well balanced. You're also going to make your engineers like love you because they won't have to do as much work <laughs> trying to figure out how to make your drums not sound like mud. So um, that's number four. And number five, uh, kind of the same concept. You know, a lot of symbols that modern manufacturers crank out these days are thicker, heavier, brighter, louder. Uh, and that simply is because uh, it's easier to make those kinds of symbols on a, on a large scale. Uh, you can produce them for a lot cheaper and give access to people, you know, give, give the access to purchase those a lot easier. So that's a very practical reason why bright, loud symbols are made. Um, it also has to do with like in the 80s with uh, 70s and 80s with the advent and the, um, the advancement of electronic instruments and the technology growing. You know, yep. amps got louder. Everything got louder, and so the drums had, you know, the, and the miking technology wasn't quite where it needed to be. So drum manufacturers and cymbal manufacturers had to make louder, brighter uh, drums and cymbals. And so nowadays you see this, this entire, this reversal because the miking technology has, has gone so far that a lot of guys are trying to go back to vintage style drums, vintage sounding cymbals that are thinner, darker, maybe a little bit, little bit more dirty and complex and washy. And um, so with, with cymbals, it all depends on the, the, the purpose, but you can choose cymbals that may, maybe sit a little lower in pitch. Uh, you still are going to have to navigate articulation if you want a really clear sound with your ride cymbal. Because, uh, again, kind of the same thing we talked about with the gushy snare drum sound. It's the same thing with cymbals. If you get like a big 24-inch crash cymbal that's uber light and thin, you are not going to be able to hear any articulation if you're trying to really open up on that cymbal. So uh, tons of caveats with that, but hopefully those five things help give you kind of a different perspective on, on what we're doing behind the kit and, and how we can craft our sound to better create a cohesive uh, experience for the listener. Yeah. That all that stuff is really, really great. And hopefully um, you can actually like talk a little bit more about this in the sense that, and you had touched on it in the sense that uh, each genre of music is just slightly different. You're not going to play, the same way for a rock situation as you would a jazz situation and the mixing of what is wanting to be louder. Um, for instance, like the ride symbol in a jazz situation is much more in front and featured more than it would be like a snare drum or a kick drum yep. when it came to like rock music or something like that. But like you said with Bernard, he comes in and makes the toms when he goes to them an experience mm, so you're yeah. you're saying oh now the toms are here oh and then they're gone done yeah. and he comes back to his little groove that he's playing with his kick snare and ride so the there are different perspectives that you can take by listening to different drummers and how they approach these ways of mixing themselves behind the kick because every single drummer is going to do it differently For and sure. then another thing that I'm, i know you have done yourself and, and as have i is this perception of your like how you mix yourself behind the kit is amplified if you have a system at home that you can record yourself 
of mm. any kind, whether it be yeah. on an iPhone, whether it be on a two-channel mixer, um, anything that you can get your get a hold of that you can then listen back to and hear how you're mixing yourself, how you're playing, what are you hitting hard, what are you hitting too hard, all these different things can really narrow in and almost like put everything under a microscope so that when you do play live, you're then able to treat it almost like you're playing a session. Mm. You're saying, okay, well, people are going to be hearing this just like a session. You play for the producers and then the, the, the artist and the goal that the artist is trying to communicate to the listeners. Yeah. It's always about the listeners. I think we skip on that so much because we then like think too much about our sound and, oh, oh I want to sound good. It sounds good to yeah. me, so that's all that matters. It's like, no, that's not – no matter what situation you're in, it's never for you. Yeah. It's never for you. It's totally. always about the person that is listening, whether you're trying to help them get into an atmosphere of worship or you're trying to play a big, massive like stadium tour. It's all about the person that has paid money mm -hmm. to come and watch right. that concert or that a person that attends that church. Yeah. So it's, and, and it goes on to, like you said, concerning the different styles and how you approach this, but all that definitely plays a factor. Um, and according to the situation, like I, mm -hmm. I think um, people should also approach a studio situation differently than they would a live situation. Absolutely. And yes, your sound is your sound, but sometimes if you play dark symbols in a live situation, it may not be the same way when you come to a studio and the, and the, um, engineers like hey uh do you have anything brighter because they're gonna ask that because sometimes it's not cutting yeah. through enough because they know the end result right. they know what the artist is looking for and that's why you kind of have to be prepared for you can get a lot i mean you can you can definitely get away with not being as crypt and this is just my opinion you you can get away with not being as crypt, although it helps when you're in a live situation and you're aware of all these things. But in the studio, you definitely cannot get away with any of that stuff. Everything's yeah. under a microscope. Everything's overly looked at, overly tuned, overly making sure everything's perfect. And that's why I think those factors that play into mixing yourself in that situation heavily applies and should not be looked over when you play in a live situation yeah. as well. Yeah, and I... Uh, just to give a major caveat with this stuff, you don't have to obsess over these five things in order to be successful because there are Absolutely. probably 99% of the drummers, 90%, we'll just say 90% of drummers ever <laughs> have never thought about this stuff ever once. No. And they just go entirely off of feeling the visceral kind of connection with the instrument. Serving the song. And serving the song. and But what I would say is these five things are, I, to me, they kind of clarify some unspoken rules that, you, that I encountered when I played professionally. Because I would get in situations, like I said earlier, where the engineer would be like, hey, can you hit the drums harder? And now looking back on them, I'm like, okay, they weren't asking me to hit the cymbals harder. They no. were asking me to hit the snare drum and the kick drum and the toms harder because I was yep. hitting, I was hitting that cymbal appropriately. Cause I, you know, I was a trained jazz drummer. So yeah. I'm playing with so much <laughs> dynamics and technique and look at me, this is so great. But I was doing the same kind of babying on the snare drum and toms and you just couldn't hear it. 
And so yeah. what he was saying was like, hey, we can't get the music to feel, to punch and to feel like it needs to with you hitting the drum that lightly. And I noticed as I started to shift into this idea of like, okay, well, it's okay to hit the drums hard. It's okay to hit that snare drum and that kick drum hard and those toms hard. It's okay to like really lay into them. When I started to realize that, I got wildly different uh, reactions from bandmates, from audience members, from sound engineers. Yeah. I started getting crazy feedback like, oh my gosh, you sound amazing. And I wasn't changing any technique. I wasn't whipping out flashy fills or flashy chops. All I was doing was appropriately mixing myself. And it was like I became a different drummer instantly. And beforehand, people, they just didn't know. They're like, oh, yeah, Tim's okay. He's an okay drummer. All I did was start incorporating these ideas, and I became, in people's minds, like, oh, he's a professional. And I started getting hired for sessions, started getting hired for gigs. I I was consistently, my phone was ringing consistently. And and it's not magic. You know what I mean? Like, a lot of people think it's about the chops. It's about the flashy. If I can just show how fast I can play a single-stroke roll, then I'll get that stadium tour gig. Yeah. It's not that like oftentimes the people that kind of approach it from a really selfless perspective and approach it like, okay, I am here to serve the music period. I'm here to serve the music. I'm not here to show off. I'm not here to go like, Hey, look at this fill. I just learned this, this uh, lick I just copped from my favorite drummer. Like that's, it's so not about you. Like you said, it's so not about you. It's about the music. If you approach it that way, just, just do an experiment, approach it that way, and then pay attention to how people respond. Pay attention to how the bandmates respond, the engineer responds, and pay attention to how much more your phone rings. And, you know, if you start doing those things, it it, it will help. I, I can, I can say it will definitely help. I don't know how much, but, um, yeah, that's my, that's, that's, that's my little plug for, uh, these ideas they've definitely helped me out a lot you know I've, I've definitely used them my entire playing career and they they dictate the kind of instruments that i make i i, I run every instrument every symbol i make i kind of run it through this uh algorithm this filter if you will of will this do this certain type of thing and what is it what is its function does it sir is it better in this situation or this situation you know i'm, I'm running it through all these thoughts in my head and it really kind of boils down to how is it going to translate in the music you know and 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 i think it works i think this stuff really works yeah no that's that's great and honestly a really great way to kind of round this all out because even when you're talking about all these different like facets of of how to mix yourself properly behind the kit it, it really gives you the perspective that I think you're trying to portray to the people that are listening because that's really at the end, the end of all of this, that's what Tim is trying to explain. It's perspective. It's making sure that you're approaching with the proper perspective, according to what gig you are playing. Mm -hmm. Because again, like we said, you're not going to play a rock gig like you are a jazz gig because that's not what the music is calling for. That's not what the artist is asking for. Now for certain situations, crazy situations an artist might actually ask for that yeah and then that in that case that would be the appropriate um way of playing that style of music but at the end of the day you want to serve the music and you want to serve the artist 
and and your bandmates because again like like you said i i know you had the situation happen where the moment you made that shift man you can tell that for instance the bass player and the drummers are always kind of locked especially mm -hmm. in worship music man you i know that the bass player got more excited yeah. knowing that you are playing a certain way and he's feeling it you're feeling it you guys oh, yeah. are locking in together and it's just it's a great feeling when you have that and you look over to your left and to your right to the bass player and he's just right there with you like exactly. chugging along on a four on the floor or something like that whatever the case is it's a great feeling when you both are in sync with the music playing for the music and what it's calling for yeah and then that just kind of trickles down to the rest of the team and that's why I really think that the and this might just be my perspective because I am a drummer, but the drummer has such a big involvement in that process of giving energy to the team Absolutely. and what everyone's taking. I mean, I know a lot of music, um, a lot of artists that take cues from their drummer mm. are, are looking to their drummer for for energy, for passion, for hitting everything on 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 the right note and just everything they're just yeah. they look to their drummer for a lot and so that's why i think having these tips having these five things to help yourself mix help help you mix yourself better behind the kit really does help and again they're not just solidified like oh like when he talked about symbols they have to be dark symbols no 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 no. Mm -mm. it was because of the situation the situation right. was calling for darker symbols yeah but another situation may call for brighter symbols yeah or lower tuned toms or higher tuned snare drums so it's really that's what's bringing this all together and yeah. so i man tim i really appreciate you coming on and really yeah. kind of bringing bringing all this together and so like let's let's kind of as we close it out and if you have any other things you can say please say them but yeah as we close it out just let people uh know where they can find you and, and all that good stuff definitely so First off, thank you so much for having me. I love getting to just geek out, nerd out, hardcore about all this stuff. I know. <laughs> take a break. I, take a break. I know. Yeah, <laughs> take a break from hammering. Uh, I, I know. I I know. I'm extremely lame with all this kind of stuff and kind of nerdy, but I I just I, I get so excited about these kinds of things because I've seen people really start to see success and start to see growth in areas they want to see growth by just incorporating some of this kind of stuff and by the way bass players are the ones to listen to the most because i got the most compliments actually came from bass players when i made that shift because those guys yeah. are really locked into what you're doing they and are. if you if you have the humility to ask your bass drum or your your bass drummers your bassist if you have the <laughs> humility to ask them please give me your honest take on my playing listen to what they say because they'll open up things in a great way so that's a little a, Absolutely. Last little point to tag on. Uh, you guys can find me on reveriedrums.com. That's the website. Uh, I'm in the process of shifting it and reworking it. So it's, uh, you know, not quite the way I want it to be, but it will be very shortly. Uh, we're going to have mod symbols. We have mod symbols there, stack ring, percussion there, reverie drums there. There's contact forms for designing your own kit. And then we're about to add Timothy Roberts handcrafted symbols, which awesome. are my first batch from entirely made by hand from B20 blanks that are shipped from Turkey. It's like the real deal. It takes about like, you know, on average about five to 10 hours to make a symbol. It's, it's amazing. It's the one of the most creatively fulfilling things. And we'll save that for another podcast, hopefully. Um, but yeah, and I'm also on Instagram too. So you can check out all the pages on Instagram and shoot me a message there. I'm usually pretty responsive there and via email, Tim at reveriedrums.com. Yeah. Great. And man, I always love kind of 
rounding out the podcast in this way, um, not just on how people can find you, but also just kind of rounding it out and like knowing that there is a process to everything we do. And why I loved having Tim on this show was because it really gives us a viewpoint into the process that he takes into really playing and serving the music. And it gives you that perspective that, you know, he didn't start out like that though. He sat mm -hmm. behind the kit when Bernard Purdy played and saw how far ahead, even with his young mind, couldn't even comprehend why this seasoned drummer was doing this. And that's why, like, I like bringing up this idea that you can never compare your chapter three to somebody else's chapter 30. And like mm -hmm. being able to sit behind someone like Bernard Purdy and see what he's doing, he's light years ahead of where you were, but yet he was the, the, the idea of what he was doing was so achievable because mm. you were just starting your book and he had been writing his book for years. And so that's yeah. why I love on this podcast that we don't just drum about it. We talk about it guys. We'll see you in the next episode.